0: Hi, everyone. This is Kevin Sykes bringing you another story from the American frontier at 1001 Stories from the Old West. Here you'll find stories about law keepers and lawbreakers, Indian fighters, prospectors, newspapermen, and others, written often by the men who lived during those times and others who wrote about it later. It was a wild time in what Congressman Davy Crockett called this britches busting country, and an important time in American history. We hope you enjoy tonight's story. We will now read a selection from Lives of Famous Indian Chiefs by Norman B. Wood, copyrighted 1906. We will be reading Chapter 15, Chief Joseph of the Nez Perce, Thunder Rolling in the Mountains, the Modern Xenophon. And now, Chief Joseph. This remarkable man and greatest Indian since Tecumseh was born according to his own statement in Eastern Oregon in the year 1841. In the North American Review of of April, 1879, is an article dictated by Joseph as follows. The first white men of your people who came to our country were named Lewis and Clark. They also brought many things our people had never seen. They talked straight and our people gave them a great feast as proof that their hearts were friendly. These men were very kind. They made presents to our chiefs and our people made presents to them. We had a great many horses of which we gave them what they needed and they gave us guns and tobacco in return. All the Nez Perce made friends with Lewis and Clark and agreed to let them pass through their country and never to make war on white men. This promise the Nez Perce have never broken. No white man can accuse them of bad faith and speak with a straight tongue. It has always been the pride of the Nez Perce that they were friends of the white man. Chief Joseph's father was also a chief and called Joseph. A strange man was old Joseph, a sturdy, strong-built man with a will of iron and a foresight that never failed him save when he welcomed the Americans to his country. He had some strange notions, too, one of which was that no man owned any part of the earth, and a man could not sell what he did not own. In 1855, Governor Stevens and Reverend Mr. Spaulding invited all the Nespers to a treaty council. Old Joseph was present, and when Mr. Spaulding urged him to sign the treaty, he answered, Why do you ask me to sign away my country? It is your business to talk to us about spirit matters and not to talk to us about parting with our land. When Governor Stevens also urged him to sign the treaty, he refused, saying, I will not sign your paper. You go where you please, so do I. If you are not a child, I am no child. I can think for myself. No man can think for me. I have no other home than this. I will not give it to any man. My people would have no home. Take away your paper. I will not touch it with my hand. Old Joseph was as firm as a rock and would never sign away his rights to Wallowa, Winding Water, claiming that it had always belonged to his people and that their title should be perpetuated. He even went so far as to enclose the entire tract with poles firmly planted in the ground and said, Inside this boundary is the home of my people. The white man may take the land outside. Within this boundary, all our people were born. It circles around the graves of our fathers, and we will never give up these graves to any man. Deluded old Joseph. Vain was your effort nor would a Chinese wall have long been an effectual barrier against the encroachments of the whites who had seen and coveted the beautiful valley of the winding waters. Ere long, white settlers established homes inside the boundaries of the aged chief in spite of his remonstrance. And the United States government, instead of protecting him and his rights, coolly claimed that it had bought all the Nez Perce country outside of La Reservation from chief lawyer and others. On account of these encroachments, another treaty was made in 1863. By this time, old Joseph had become blind and feeble and could no longer speak for his people. It was then that young Joseph took his father's place as chief and made his first speech to white men. Said he to the agent who held the council, I did not want to come to this council, But I came, hoping that we could save blood. The white man has no right to come here and take our country. We have never accepted any presence from the government. Neither lawyer nor any other chief had authority to sell this land. It has always belonged to my people. It came unclouded to them from our fathers, and we will defend this land as long as a drop of Indian blood warms the heart of our men. The agent told Joseph he had orders from the great white chief at Washington for his band to go upon the Lopway reservation and that if they obeyed, he would help them in many ways. You must move to the agency, he said, to which Joseph replied, I will not. I do not need your help. We have plenty and we are contented and happy if the white man will let us alone. The reservation is too small for so many people with all their stock. You can keep your presence. We can go to your towns and pay for all we need. We have plenty of horses and cattle to sell. We won't have any help from you. We are free now. We can go where we please. Our fathers were born here. Here they lived. Here they died. Here are their graves. We will never leave them. The agent went away, and the Indians had peace for a little while. In his narrative, young Joseph said, Soon after this, my father sent for me. I saw he was dying. I took his hand in mine. He said, My son, my body is returning to my mother earth, and my spirit is going very soon to see the great spirit chief. When I am gone think of your country. You are the chief of these people. They look to you to guide them. Always remember that your father never sold his country. You must stop your ears whenever you are asked to sign a treaty selling your home. A few years more and the white men will be all around you. They have their eyes on this land. My son, never forget my dying words." This country holds your father's body. Never sell the bones of your father and your mother. I pressed my father's hand and told him I would protect his grave with my life. My father smiled and passed away to the spirit land. I buried him in that beautiful valley of winding waters. I love that land more than all the rest of the world. A man who would not love his father's grave is worse than a wild animal. Spoken like the noble son of an equally noble sire, inspired by such words of burning patriotism, is it any wonder that young Joseph resisted the encroachments of the whites and the machinations of the government authorities to the bitter end, and not only gave them a run for their money, but the most stubbornly contested campaign of all our Indian wars? Chief Joseph of the Nez Perce was more than six feet in height, of magnificent physique, strikingly handsome and graceful, with a native dignity and a mind of great strength. He was a true patriot, and in defense of his country, evinced the genius of a natural-born general. And could he have received the training of West Point, he would have become the peer of Grant, Lee, or Sherman. He conducted, as will be seen, one of the most skillful and masterly retreats in the annals of warfare. He was, moreover, as eloquent as Logan or Red Jacket, and a gifted logician who could not be refuted. He disposed of the question in dispute in a manner that was at once logical and unanswerable. Said he, If we ever owned the land, we still own it, for we never sold it. In the treaty councils, the commissioners have claimed that our country had been sold to the government. Suppose a white man should come to me and say, Joseph, I like your horses and I want to buy them. I say to him, no, my horses suit me. I will not sell them. Then he goes to my neighbor and says to him, Joseph has some good horses. I want to buy them, but he refuses to sell. My neighbor answers, pay me the money and I will sell you Joseph's horses. The white man returns to me and says, Joseph, I have bought your horses, and you must let me have them. If we sold our lands to the government, this is the way they were bought. After the wrong was consummated, when Joseph was permitted to go to Washington and talk to our wise men, he said, I have asked some of the great white chiefs where they got their authority to say to the Indian, that he shall stay in one place, while he sees white men going where they please. They cannot tell me. That question will never be answered. In his report of September 1875, General O. O. Howard said, I think it a great mistake to take from Joseph and his band of Nesperce Indians that valley. The white people really did not want it, they wished to be bought out. I think, gradually, this valley will be abandoned by the white people, and possibly Congress can be induced to let these really peaceable Indians have this poor valley for their own. Lieutenant Colonel H. Clay Wood was another member of the commission who, in his report of August 1, 1876 on the status of young Joseph and his band of Nesperce Indians, gave his opinion that the government had so far failed to comply with its agreements in the Treaty of 1855 that none of the nespers were bound by it. He also made a minority report as commissioner recommending that although Joseph's band would have to be moved eventually, yet that until Joseph commits some overt act of hostility, force should not be used to put him upon any reservation. The other members of the commission... D.H. Jerome, William Stickney, and A.C. Barstow must have had a very different report. For certain it is, the Department of the Interior, acting on its recommendations, ordered the non-treaties to be placed on the La Pue Reservation. By virtue of his office as commander of that district, General Howard was the agent to enforce this order. He met the non-treaties in May and found, as he must have anticipated, that they were unwilling to go on the reservation. General Howard held three councils with the malcontent Indians at Fort Lopway, the station of the Indian Agency for the Nez Perce Reservation, said to be the loveliest valley of Idaho. The last of these councils, that of May 7, 1877, was indeed a stormy session. The principal speaker on this occasion was Tu-Hul-Hul-Suit, who was a dreamer, as well as a prophet, priest, and chief. He taught that the earth, having been created by God in its completeness, should not be interfered with, disturbed, or improved by man, and that if the Indians continued steadfast in their belief, a great leader would be raised up in the east, at a single blast of whose trumpet all the dead warriors would start suddenly into life, and that the millions of braves thus collected would expel the white man from the continent of America and repossess it for their own dusky race. The old dreamer was a man of great importance and remarkable influence among the Indians. As the council proceeded, tu hul Sut arose and said to General Howard, "'The great spirit chief made the world as it is and as he wanted it, and he made a part of it for us to live upon.' I do not see where you get the authority to say that we shall not live where he placed us. Chief Joseph, says General Howard, now lost his temper and said, Shut up. I do not want to hear any more such talk. The law says you shall go upon the reservation to live, and I want you to do so. But you persist in disobeying the law. If you do not move, I will take the matter into my own hand and make you suffer for your disobedience. tu hul Hulsut answered, Who are you that you ask us to talk and then tell me I shan't talk? Are you the great spirit? Did you make the world? Did you make the sun? Did you make the river run for us to drink or the grass to grow? Did you make all these things that you talk to us as though we were boys? If you did, then you have the right to talk to us as you do. General Howard replied, You are an impudent fellow, and I will put you in the guardhouse, and then ordered a soldier to arrest him. Tu Hul made no resistance. He asked General Howard, Is that your order? I do not care. I have expressed my heart to you. I have nothing to take back. I have spoken for my country. You can arrest me, but you cannot change me or make me take back what I have said. Continuing, Joseph said, The soldiers came forward and seized my friend and took him to the guardhouse. My men whispered among themselves whether they should let this be done. I counseled them to submit. If I had said nothing, General Howard would never have given another unjust order against my men." I saw the danger, and while they dragged Tuhulhulsut to prison, I arose and said, I am going to talk now. I don't care whether you arrest me or not. I turned to my people and said, The arrest of Tuhulhulsut was wrong, but he will not resent the insult. We were invited to this council to express our hearts, and we have done so. Tuhulhulsut was, was a prisoner five days before he was released. This Indian chief was therefore put under military arrest and confined for five days for delivering himself of what General Howard calls a tirade in a council to which the Indians had been invited to come for the purpose of consultation and expression of sentiment. As the Indian commissioner in his annual report for 1878 Well says, if such and so swift a penalty as this for tirades in council were the law of our land, especially in the District of Columbia, it would be no just cause of complaint when the Indians suffer for it. But considering the frequency, length, and safety of tirades in all parts of America, it seems unjust not to permit Indians to deliver them. The position of the government was now plain to the Indians. They must go to the reservation or fight. They decided to go. Joseph wrote, I said in my heart that rather than have war, I would give up my country. I would give up my father's grave. I would give up everything rather than have the blood of white men upon the hands of my people. General Howard refused to allow me more than 30 days to move my people and their stock. I said to him, My people have always been the friends of white man. Why are you in such a hurry? I cannot get ready to move in 30 days. Our stock is scattered. The Snake River is very high. Let us wait until fall. Then the river will be low. We want time to hunt up our stock and gather supplies for winter. We want the people who live upon the lands we are to occupy at Lapwe to have time to gather their harvest. General Howard replied, If you let the time run over one day, the soldiers will be there to drive you on the reservation, and all your cattle and horses outside the reservation at that time will fall into the hands of white men. It does seem that this great haste was unnecessary and positively cruel and that those Indians should have been given time to collect their stock, their sole means of subsistence, and get them safely over the river. But the theory is we must have firmness in dealing with the Indian if we have nothing else. Yet, this time it proved to be a serious and costly blunder. Joseph truly said, if General Howard had given me plenty of time to gather up my stock and treated Tuhul Hulsut as a man should be treated, there would have been no war. The Indians went to make their preparations. They looked on their old home and their love for it increased at the thought that they were about to be deprived of it by fraud, even though they had never sold it or signed it away. Tuhul Hulsut's indignation Burned because of his imprisonment for the offense of telling his convictions in the council, the very thing he was expected to do. There was a warrior whose father had been killed by a white man, and the wrong was unrebuked. There were two warriors who had been whipped by one Harry Mason. These formed a war party, and determined over Joseph's council, to fight the soldiers when they came. It is said that at this time, Chief Joseph rode one day through his village with a revolver in each hand, saying he would shoot the first one of his warriors who resisted the government. Finally, they gathered all the stock they could find, preparatory to moving. A heavy rain raised the river so high, some of the cattle could not be taken across. Indian guards were put in charge of the cattle left behind. White men attacked these guards and took the cattle. After this, Joseph could not restrain his young men, and the warfare began. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator in the hope that they would remain neutral. But it was voted down in the War Council on the ground that it was the settlers who brought on all the trouble because they wanted the Nez Perce's land and stock. And in fact, some of them actually got both. The Indians now bought arms and ammunition wherever they could. They practiced military movements in which they were already quite proficient. General Shanks says, Joseph Party was thoroughly disciplined, that they rode at full gallop along the mountainside in a steady formation by fours, formed twos at a given signal, in perfect precision, to cross a narrow bridge, then galloped into line, reined into a sudden halt, and dismounted with as much system as regulars. June 18 arrived. The thirty days were up. The soldiers had not come. Over on Salmon River, three Indians killed an old hermit ranchman named Divine. The taste of blood whetted their appetites, and the next day, four more fell victims. Mounting their horses, they hurried to Camas Prairie, where the main body of Indians was encamped. Riding through the camp, they displayed the spoils of their bloodshed and exhorted the others to join them. Joseph and his brother Olicut were not in the camp they had placed their teepees some distance from the others on account of Joseph's wife, who was sick and wanted quiet. Whitebird, the next in rank and influence, gave way. Riding through the camp, he exclaimed, All must join now. There is blood. You will be punished if you delay. Seventeen warriors joined the three, and they hurried back to the Salmon River. Eight more fell victims to them, including Harry Mason, who had whipped the two Indians. On the night of June 14, another party attacked the people of the Cottonwood House, a ranch used as a frontier inn on the road between Mount Idaho and Fort Lopway. At 10 o'clock, they were warned by a messenger of the approaching Indians and hurriedly started to Mount Ohio, two on horseback, the rest, including several women and children, in a farm wagon. When they had covered 10 miles of their journey, They were overtaken by the Indians. Two men and a boy were killed and the others badly wounded. Two men subsequently dying of their injuries. We'll return right after these sponsor messages. And now back to our story. Joseph protested against the hostilities until he saw that war was inevitable Then he took command and moved his warriors to Whitebird Canyon, where they prepared to fight the soldiers. Nor had they long to wait. Colonel Perry, at the head of 90 soldiers, was soon on the road from Fort Lapoy. On the evening of the 16th, he reached Grangerville, four miles from Mount Idaho, where he was joined by ten citizens. Marching on through the night, he reached Whitebird Canyon at daylight, and began the descent of the broad trail, hoping to surprise the Indians. But the vigilant Joseph's keen eye was the first to discover the group of horsemen silhouetted against the sky at the head of the canyon, just as the sun was rising. "'Get the white man's glass,' I tell Whitebird. "'Horses! The soldiers are here!' he shouted in command." Some of his young men became a little nervous as they saw the soldiers approaching and suggested that it would be better to move across the Salmon River where the soldiers could not reach them. No, said Joseph, we will fight them here. The women and children were sent across the river and a party of mounted warriors under Whitebird took a position in ambush behind a ridge on the south side of the canyon. The rest, under Joseph were crouched on the ground, squarely across the trail, hidden behind rocks and in hollows. On came the soldiers, until it was well within range, when every bush and rock poured out its fire. At the same time, White Bird's men appeared on the left and poured in another deadly volley. The soldiers were falling fast, and the order was shouted to fall back to the next ridge. This was immediately done. But with the enemy at their heels there was no time to stop. While the officers were trying to rally their men, the Indians were pressing along the sides of the canyon to gain the head and cut off the retreat. Part of the command reached the ascent and hurried out. The remainder, under Lieutenant Theller, were cut off and most of them, including the gallant lieutenant, were killed. Across the rugged country, the Indians pursued the flying troops for 12 miles, but once, out of that death trap, The officers obtained control and the retreat was conducted with some degree of order. Four miles from Mount Idaho, Joseph withdrew his men. He had fought and won his first battle, even though largely outnumbered by his enemy. Joseph says of this encounter, We numbered in that battle 60 men and the soldiers 100. The fight lasted but a few minutes before the soldiers retreated. They lost 33 killed, and had seven wounded. When an Indian fights, he only shoots to kill, but soldiers shoot at random. None of the soldiers were scalped. We do not believe in scalping, nor in killing wounded men. Soldiers do not kill many Indians unless they are wounded and left upon the battlefield. Then they kill Indians. The military reputation of the Ness Perce was altered. It would require a stronger force to subdue them. Reinforcements were ordered from all the neighboring forts. Skirmishing and other minor engagements continued. While waiting for these reinforcements, a detachment was sent under Captain Whipple to attack Chief Looking Glass and his band and bring them in before they had time to join the hostiles. Whipple discovered the red men in the neighborhood of Mount Idaho and dispatched Lieutenant Rains with ten picked men and a scout named Foster to reconnoiter. Following this advance guard at a distance of a mile with his main force, the sound of firing was heard at the front. Hurrying forward with his command, Whipple was horrified to find that Raines and every man in his detachment had been killed. A company of 17 volunteers under Captain Randall was attacked on the Mount Idaho Road. Two were killed and two wounded. All would have been cut to pieces had not Captain Whipple and his company hurried to the rescue. As to Looking Glass, his camp was destroyed and 725 ponies captured, but he and his warriors all escaped and joined Joseph. Meantime, General Howard was at Fort Lopway, impatiently waiting for reinforcements, but the accounts of Indian horrors came so thick and fast that further delay, though desirable, was yet impossible. On July 11, General Howard and his little army of 400 fighting men, besides teamsters and trained men, came in sight of the enemy. Joseph, at the head of about 300 warriors, had crossed the country to the Lapwai Reservation and taken a position on the Clearwater, and was waiting to give battle, having erected breastworks of the most approved pattern. This was done with the assistance of the squaws, who fought as hard as the men, and as usual, worked harder. The soldiers advanced in the line of battle, leaving the supply trains unguarded from the high point of vantage he had taken. Joseph was quick to notice this and dispatched thirty warriors to attack them. An officer with his field-glass caught this movement just in time to send a messenger to warn them to hurry into the lines. A company of cavalry also galloped to their protection. The Indians gained the smaller train, killed two packers and disabled their animals, but were driven off by the fire of the cavalry. The large train, however, gained the lines uninjured. The battle raged all that afternoon, with its charges and countercharges, its fainting and fighting. During the night, both parties kept up a desultory fire while strengthening their positions. The battle was renewed in the morning, and continued with no perceptible advantage to either side until the middle of the afternoon. At that time, a fresh company of cavalry reinforced General Howard's command. The troop now redoubled their effort by charging the enemy's line on the left. For a short time, the Indians fought desperately from behind their rocky breastworks, but at length gave way and fled in all directions, bounding from rock to rock through the ravines or plunging into the river out of sight only to reappear when its swift current had borne them out of range. The victorious troops pressed them so closely that the Indian camp with its blankets, buffalo robes, and cooking utensils fell into their hands. The Indians, however, made their escape with the herds and sufficient supplies for their purpose. And before the soldiers could cross the Clearwater, a large body of warriors was seen on the right front, apparently returning for an attack. While preparations were being made to meet this force, the remainder of the Indians continued their flight and escaped. The returning warriors, having accomplished their purpose by this feint, shortly disappeared. In the morning, the troops continued to pursue the retreating Indians, only to fall into an ambush by the rear guard of the Nez Perce and be thrown into confusion. Night found the Indians safely encamped in an almost impregnable position at the entrance of Lolo Trail. Joseph had fought his second battle against heavy odds, and, though beaten, had brought off his forces most creditably. Finding they were largely outnumbered, the Indians retreated through the mountain pass to Bitterroot Valley over what General Sherman says is universally admitted by all who have traveled it, from Lewis and Clark to Captain Winters, as one of the worst trails for man and beast on this continent. The Nez Perce came safely over this trail, encumbered with their women and children and herds. In the valley of the Lulu, they were confronted by a hastily built fort held by Captain Ron with a few regulars and some volunteers. Lookingglass said to them, we will not fight the settlers if they do not fight us. We are going by you to the Buffalo Country. Will you let us go in peace? Ron replied, you cannot go by us. To this, the Indian answered, we are going by you without fighting if you will let us, but we are going by you anyhow. The volunteers now interfered and told the commander the Nez Perce had always been good Indians. The settlers on the bitter route had no grounds for complaint in their conduct as they passed each year to and from the buffalo country. Besides, in the expressive frontier phrase, they had not lost any Indians and consequently were not hunting for any. The Indians might pass, and God speed them out of their country. The Nez Perce not only passed by in peace, but they stopped at the villages of Stevensville and Corvallis and traded with the whites. They also left a spy in Corvallis who stopped until Howard had come up and passed on and then sped away to Joseph with full particulars. Meanwhile, General Gibson, with about 200 cavalry, had hastened from Helena across to Fort Missoula on the Bitter Route, but arrived too late to intercept Joseph. Gibbon followed the Indian Trail and overtook them August the 8th. Waiting through the night for that dark still hour, which is just before the dawn, He swept through the camp in a furious charge, completely surprising the Indians. It seems that Joseph and his men, supposed the war was over, and having started to the Buffalo Country, were careless about posting sentinels. Though taken by surprise, General Joseph rallied his warriors and recaptured the camp. He also drove the soldiers back to a grove of timber, where they erected rude barricades and made a stand. Joseph said of General Gibbon, finding that he was not able to capture us, he sent his camp for his big guns, but my men had captured them and all the ammunition. We damaged the big guns all we could and carried away the powder and lead. At 11 o'clock that night, the Indians withdrew, leaving Gibbon wounded and his command so crippled that it could not pursue. Joseph had fought and won his third battle. The Nez Perce remained long enough to bury their dead, but when General Howard joined Gibbon at this place, his Bannock scouts, ghoul-like, dug up the bodies and in the presence of officers and men, scalped and mutilated them. The body of Looking Glass, their ablest diplomat who fell here, was abused in this manner. Although the Nez Perce, being neither civilized nor the allies of civilization, neither took scalps nor mutilated. It is also their proud boast that they never made war on women and children while the war lasted. Joseph said, We would feel ashamed to do so cowardly an act. Continuing the retreat, Joseph and his band crossed the Continental Divide again into Idaho and camped on the great Comas Prairie on the Yellowstone, west of the National Park. He had replenished his supplies, captured 250 good horses, and his forces were in excellent condition. General Howard's troops also camped in the prairie a day's march behind Lieutenant Bacon and had been dispatched with a squad of men to hold Thatcher's Pass, the most accessible roadway over the divide into the park. The pickets and sentinels were posted, and the weary troopers were soon sleeping, unconscious of war's alarm. In the faint starlight, dark forms might have been seen creeping through the tall grass. Halter ropes and hobbles were cut, and bells removed from the necks of the bell mares. Creeping away in the same manner, but with less caution, a slight noise was made. What was that? asked a picket of a comrade. Nothing but a prowling wolf, was the reply. For some time, nothing could be heard in the camp but the regular footfalls of the sentinel. "'Suddenly, a troop of horsemen came in sight, "'riding back over the trail of the Indians. "'They rode in column of fours regularly and without haste. "'It must be Bacon's men returning,' said the pickets. "'On came the troopers to the very lines of the camp, "'but when they were challenged by the sentinel, "'they answered with a war-whoop. "'At once, pandemonium was let loose. "'A wild yell fell, followed by a fusillade from small arms.' which startled the soldiers and stampeded the horses and mules, which were seen scampering away, with heads in the air and nostrils spread, snorting with excitement, followed by the Indians yelling like demons. We must credit the great chieftain with a successful surprise. The Nez Perce next eluded Bacon and retreated through Thatcher's Pass into the beautiful National Park. In the region of the hot springs and geysers, they met a party of travelers. It consisted of Mr. Cowan, his wife, sister-in-law, brother-in-law, and two guides. Three of the men were left for dead, but the other, together with the two ladies, were carried into captivity. Horrible fate. General Howard said they were afterward rescued. But Joseph said, on the way, we captured one white man and two white women. We released them at the end of three days. They were treated kindly. On September 9, word was brought that General Sturgis was coming from the Powder River country with 350 cavalry and some friendly crows. Joseph was now between the two forces. Can the Indian chieftain again escape? Yes. This savage, with a genius for war, which would have made him famous among the military heroes of any age or country, made a feint toward the West— fooling Sturgis and sending him on a wild goose chase to guard the trail down the stinking water. At the same time, Joseph and his people, under the cover of a dense forest, made their way into a narrow and slippery canyon. This was immensely deep, but the almost perpendicular walls were but twenty feet apart. Through this dark chasm slipped and floundered the cavalry and infantry. It must have been a strange sight as the column moved slowly along the bottom of the defile. Men, horses, pack mules, and artillery, with only a narrow ribbon of sky high above them. All in vain. Joseph escaped again. There was but one way to reach them, and that was by direct pursuit. All day long the Indians retreated, fighting desperately as they went and at dark, the exhausted soldiers withdrew to a camp at the mouth of the canyon. Nothing had been accomplished during the day except to round up several hundred ponies, which had been abandoned by the Nespers. While they continued their flight on fresh mounts, march as they would, the soldiers could not diminish the distance between the pursued and the pursuers. The Nespers retreated up the Musselshell River, and then, circling back of the Judith Mountains, struck the Missouri, September 23, at Cow Island. General Joseph had fought his fourth battle against a greatly superior force, which he had held in check while he brought off his own people in comparative safety. Crossing the Missouri, the Nez Perce moved on leisurely to the north. Having repulsed the forces of Howard, Gibbon, and Sturgis, each in turn, the Indians began to feel secure. They were now entering a beautiful country, a veritable paradise, lying between the Bear Paw and Little Rocky Mountains. It is also rich in romance and tradition, and the reputed locality of the lost cabin of Montana, the new Eldorado of miners' thoughts by days and dreams by night. The Indians established their camp on Snake Creek, a tributary of Milk River, within a day's march of the British Dominions. There was yet one hope. Days before, a messenger had embarked in a canoe and started down the Yellowstone River to Fort Keogh to inform General N. A. Miles, the commandant, of the situation. General Miles at once put his forces in order and started northward to intercept the wily Joseph. He reached the Indian camp on the morning of September 30 at the head of three hundred and seventy five men and at once began the attack. The Nez Perce knew of their coming only long enough to take a position in the ravines of the Creek Valley and await the attack. General Miles ordered a charge upon the Indian camp, which succeeded in cutting it in two and capturing most of their horses. The soldiers, however, recoiled under the deadly fire of the Indians, with one-fifth of their force killed and wounded. Joseph's warriors, though surprised, proved themselves worthy of the reputation they had established at Camas Prairie. Big Hole and elsewhere, and fought with great valor. The continuous firing and unerring aim of their magazine guns at close range inflicted a loss to General Miles of twenty six killed and forty wounded, while Joseph's loss for the first day and night was eighteen men and three women. Each side found their foe worthy of their steel. Never on any occasion did the American Indians display more heroic courage and never did the American soldiers exhibit more unshaken fortitude. For four days and as many nights, the two forces faced each other. The whites controlled the situation as escape from the ravine was cut off but were unwilling to attempt to capture the camp by storm. They knew from their first experience that such an attempt would involve a terrible loss of life. Meantime, Joseph strengthened his entrenchments and prepared for a siege. He also dispatched a messenger to Sitting Bull, who was just over the line of the British Dominions, with 1,200 discontented and hostile Sioux. The hope was that this chief and his warriors would come to their relief. But for some reason, Sitting Bull failed them in their extremity. The Indians could not escape through the lines without abandoning their wounded and helpless. Joseph said of this battle, We could have escaped from Bear Paw Mountain if we had left our wounded, old women, and children behind. We were unwilling to do this. We had never heard of a wounded Indian recovering while in the hands of white men. I could not bear to see my wounded men and women suffer any longer. We had lost enough already. General Miles had promised that we might return to our country with what stock we had left. I believed General Miles, or I never would have surrendered. I have heard that he has been censured for making the promise to return us to Lopwe. He could not have made any other terms with me at that time. I would have held him in check until my friends came to my assistance, and then neither of the generals nor the soldiers would have ever left Bear Paw Mountain alive. On the morning of October 5, Joseph and his band surrendered, those who were left. Olacut his brother had fallen here at Snake Creek with 27 others. White Bird had flown in the night with a band of 105, including Joseph's daughter. They reached the British dominions and joined Sitting Bull. So to stop any further bloodshed, Chief Joseph now handed his gun to General Miles in the presence of General Howard who arrived the day previous with a small escort and said with impressive dignity tell general howard i know his heart what he told me before i have in my heart i am tired of fighting our chiefs are killed looking glass is dead tu Hool suit is dead The old men are all dead. It is young men who say yes or no. He who led on the young men is dead. It is cold and we have no blankets. The little children are freezing to death. My people, some of them, have run away to the hills and have no blankets, no food. No one knows where they are, perhaps freezing to death. I want to have time to look for my children and see how many of them I can find. Maybe I shall find them among the dead. Hear me, my chiefs. I am tired. My heart is sick and sad. From where the sun now stands, I will fight no more forever. And though the saga of Chief Joseph And his valiant Nez Perce doesn't end there. Quite frankly, what happens afterwards is too heartbreaking to tell. The Department of the Interior did not honor their treaty obligations. They did not honor the terms of surrender. They were negligent, cruel in their placement of the Nez Perce in Indian Territory, that is Oklahoma. They never returned the property, the livestock, that the Nez Perce lost, and far too many of the Nez purse never returned home. Thanks for joining us at 1001 Stories from the Old West. If you enjoyed this episode, please do send us a review. This is your host, Kevin Sykes, speaking on behalf of the 1001 Stories Network. Take care, and we'll be back soon with a brand new story.